So war has not only been proximate, it's been foundational. The citizen was always presumed to be a potential soldier. It is useful to see the kinds of strategies that Mike is talking about as ways to eliminate the fog and friction of war. Everybody, my name is Mike Hill. I'm a professor in the English department at SUNY Albany. Uh, I'm also a member of the Institute for Public Health and the Environment and a core member of the Re-Enlightenment Group. And I'm the author of On Post-Human War, Computation and Military Violence, which we're going to talk about today. I'm Warren Montag. I teach English literature at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And I am Robin Morosco. I teach political theory at Hunter College and the Graduate Center at CUNY. Well, thank you both, Warren and Robin, for for agreeing to do this. I so much appreciate both your presence here and and also your having taken the time to to read the book. The title of the book, On Post-Human War, and the subtitle, Computation and Military Violence, has some keywords clearly in it. And, And one of them turns out to be a word that I'm not terribly wedded to, but it's there as a kind of shorthand, and that word is post-human. And I suppose I'm less interested in, in the post part of the post-human than I am in, in the human part. Its history is a, a, a political concept, one that dates back at least as far as the Enlightenment. Uh, it's connected specifically with Western modernity and, and has to do with what we call civil society, the public sphere. Uh, the idea that there is a realm of reason and dialogue, intersubjectivity and give and take that is somehow absolutely separate from political coercion, let alone certain kinds of violence and especially military violence. And this is something that is is core to an entire history of, of natural law theory going back through Locke and Hobbes and lots of other names that I'm sure people know. One of the premises there, then, is that the state has a a monopoly over where violence is used, and that one of the big no-nos for a human being per se, or a citizen, to claim rights, is that whatever political agency that citizen or that rights-bearing human being has, those politics have to exist at the level of discussion, as Kant says, argue, but obey. (laughs) And what you obey is the law. And when you break the law, the state then decides that political force or force of one kind or another may be useful. The historical irony of all this, of course, is that, as everybody knows who studies the Enlightenment, that this was a period not only of uh, rational discourse and, and the dawn of the public sphere, but of extreme violence, and, and that that violence occurred in a way that was exterior uh, to civil society, or so was the claim, but also often hidden. That is, it existed at the periphery. Um, this is, of course, at a time of, of, of colonialism and of nothing short of the radical forms of military violence and occupations of other places to produce the kind of wealth necessary to go into the public sphere so that people could claim rights in the first place. And it also ought to be said that those rights have to do with the possession of private property and wealth and so on. So if we have this historical paradigm where the human being per se is defined as a civilianized member of civil society and a participant in the public sphere outside of political force, the post in post-human war is suggesting that something else is happening or has happened. And the term I use to talk about that something else is de-civilianization. That is, after 9-11, the connection between citizen or civilian, let's say, and soldier and combatant 
becomes rather tenuous. And it's not tenuous in a sort of accidental way. It's, it's, it's tenuous in a, in a quite legal way. I mean, the uh, surveillance apparatus uh, that gets put into place after 9-11, the idea that um, every citizen may also be a suspect. And you can think about the massive kinds of data dumps and other forms of computational uh, surveillance that, that occurs during that period. I think ushered in a moment of, again, what I call decivilianization. We can look at that not just internally to civil society, and there are other examples of that we could name, but also the way in which the battlefield itself, exterior to the nation state, thinking here, of course, of the global war on terror, gets reconstituted such that what we're talking about now are no longer fighting on clearly demarcated battlefields with strict lines of opposition. That this is a network-centric way of thinking about the enemy, where not only could the enemy be your next-door neighbor or the enemy could be you, but that on the battlefield, new techniques of war are being put into place. And so in chapter one, I talk about what's called the revolution in military affairs, which looks specifically at identity in a civil society context, or at least in a non-military context, to use things like the human terrain system programs, which are anthropological forms of research, to, to look at civilian population patterns, to look at kinship relationships, to look at even things like population flows that are now perceptible from the perspective of, of say, a, a loitering drone. These are examples of what some of the counterinsurgency field manuals called achieving identity supremacy, or even as a form of counterinsurgency using what they call um, identity infiltration. And so when we start thinking about terms like the human being or the self or the citizen or identity, terms that used to be thought about as you know, decivilianized or rather civilianized terms are becoming civilianized in these ways, we start to see patterns between um, the so-called homeland and um, what's happening uh, on the battlefield. So I'm interested in a couple of things in the core of the book. One is demography, how identities are, are traced and how they interact. The other is anthropology, which has a long history connected to, uh, to warfare, which we can talk about. And then the third chapter, and I'll just end with the overview here, talks about war neuroscience. And so what is interesting to find out as one looks at the research going on on the human brain that is connecting cognition to data and then therefore to weaponry is that the brain itself and its very architecture is described as a battlefield domain. And at least in the eyes of the researchers is a kind of seamless expansion, right? That absorbs both civil society, the external battlefields, and even the human body itself, it turns out at the very end. The final thing I'll say just by word of overview is the other keyword, and that is computation. The idea that in the same way that we talked about the Enlightenment period as being one where the human being per se takes on these modern meanings, the media revolution that occurs at that particular time is, of course, print culture, reading, writing, circulation of books, magazines, newspapers, and so on. And it's a, it's a big part of the establishment of civil society. Clearly, there's been another media revolution that we can talk about, and that is computation. And so, again, when you read some of the military research, what they talk about very often is data as a kind of war material. One of their favorite phrases is bullets, beans, and data. And the assumption there is that if it can be turned into numbers, then it can also be directed towards a military uh, outcome. And so these techniques, for example, in the Human Training Systems Program, or in some of the military neuroscience and in some of the identity infiltration techniques are all fundamentally computational. 
they don't occur by one set of eyes looking at another set of eyes. They occur through biometrics. They occur through really complicated algorithmic forms of, uh, of surveillance and, and population control. And so the computational part of the project here uh, ought to be also be something that's put alongside that, that term, human being. Okay. Um, first of all, I wanted to say that the strength, of, and, and I think uh, Mike's book is an extraordinarily useful and very well-researched text that's overflowing with information, sort of in imitation of the object of the book in some way. I think anyone who reads it can easily feel overwhelmed because there are many, it's pointing in many different directions. And one of the ways that I tried to cope with that is to look at the critiques within the military of the strategy that was outlined in 2006 with General Petraeus and the idea of terrain to not just to the human, but also really to everything. It's a kind of totalizing idea which poses huge problems for the military. But one of the things that I found very useful is that a number of commentators who are in the military said that, uh, in fact, we could understand uh, Petraeus's uh, counterinsurgency strategy in terms of Clausewitz in, in a certain way, the on war. And he talks about two things that I think are very much at play in, the, the, for example, the various versions of Field Manual 3 24 on counterinsurgency, which first came out in uh, 2006. And Clausewitz has two concepts that keep getting referred to. The fog of war, which has to do with knowledge that at any given time, there is so much that you can't see. At that time, it was taken as a immutable category because you can never eliminate that fog and you have to sort of figure out how to maneuver within it. And then also uh, sort of the corollary to that is the friction of war, which is uh, all the unforeseeable elements, uh, forces that prevent the, uh, an army from achieving what once appeared to be easily achievable goals. And I think it's, it's very useful to use that to understand what was going on in 2006, because as we know, I don't want to go into the history in any detail, but it was a disaster in, in 2006 in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, the military had obviously stumbled into something that they had absolutely no preparation for and were caught off guard in many different ways. And so Petraeus made a kind of bold effort, which I think we can say now was, was a complete failure in many ways, which doesn't mean it won't continue, but it was a complete failure, to extend the battlefield or the, the terrain to the totality of what's in front of him. And it was very demanding. And I mean, looking at the precise wording of the, of the field manual in any of its versions, what I found absolutely stunning was the, the ignorance and the naivete in that document where you can just learn a culture in a matter of a few months. And if you just walk out among the people instead of remaining inside your armored vehicle, then this is the solution to a problem of knowledge because you'll see what's going on, et cetera. And then you learn all their customs, you know, like you could read a, like an etiquette book or something and then know what to do, what not to do. And then, you know, finally, as he says in a very funny way, yes, you might even learn their language. 
yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of mind-boggling that someone could say that at that point in that that um, conflict. And this is, of course, it leads to uh, much more complicated scenarios and a sense of how complicated this new battlefield is. It's not something you can just automatically draw up and, and use like a map or something. So I think it is useful to see the kinds of strategies that Mike is talking about as ways to eliminate the fog and friction of war in that sense. And I think um, if we look at the three categories, demography is extremely important. We can see that there was an invasion of a country that for the U.S. military was basically homogeneous, except for clearly identifiable and historically you know, very important minority groups. There was no sense, I mean, there wasn't even a clear sense that the Arabic that's spoken in Iraq is not the same that's spoken in other places or even within Iraq. It may be very difficult for one person to understand another person, dialects, etc. And uh, the, the number of languages wasn't really known, which is kind of extraordinary. And uh, there was some very vague notion of these minority groups, but it wasn't very serviceable. So Petraeus was proposing, and I don't think he knew the extent of what he was proposing, to begin to figure out like how many different groups they are, how is the society organized in terms of given populations according to ethnicity or tribal membership, which uh, is important there and uh, also in Afghanistan. And uh, I think that what they then embarked on was an impossible mission of a kind of totalization of all this information. And what happened, as uh, one of the commentators says, is that there was overload and the, the entire gathering of data became impossible. There was so much information and so little ability to filter out the accurate, the inaccurate, the partially accurate, et cetera, that it actually just set up a whole new set of problems. With, with the demographic approach, there's even a concentration on you know the typical modes of inquiry or kinds of inquiry that we associate with demography. Are people starving? Are they hungry? Are they malnourished? What is their economic status? Are they employed, unemployed? You know, just to gather that data in a short period of time in a way that it could be used by the military is impossible, as they found out. So it was the beginning of a kind of project of information that was doomed to failure from the start. And its naivete was that belief that, oh, this could all be done quite easily with new computational techniques and, you know, statistical uh, models for uh, analyzing data, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. And then the uh, anthropological chapter of, of Mike's book is extremely, maybe even more important in a certain way, because this is where the U.S. Army had to deal with Islam. They couldn't just read a book. They began to confront the fact that there are different branches of Islam, that even within Sunni or Shiite Islam, there are many differences. And people uh, may have, you know, sharp antagonisms that they're not aware of. And Islam, you know, really, really uh, text like the Quran is not at all an easy thing that one just, you just pick up the Quran and leaf through it or something like that. Again, they discovered that this civilization or society that they regarded as rather simple in some ways was extraordinarily complicated. And then they had things like 
when they looked at manners, like etiquette, etc., the binary opposition that's proposed in the, the field manual is formal and informal. So manners, the way you interact with other people is either formal, uh, which it appeared that the Iraqi model was formal, and the Americans are informal. It's absurd. Uh, it's, it's completely ethnocentric in every possible way. It's completely inaccurate. And so the magnitude of the problem posed by Petraeus's strategy is, you know, becomes more apparent with every uh, aspect of life that they want to investigate in the army. What happened was that the U.S. Army was constantly creating conflicts, which functioned as friction that impeded them at every step, and they couldn't gather sufficient information, which just appeared to complicate everything even more. It didn't lead anywhere except for despair and then withdrawal. And one of the things just the neuroscience chapter is very, very interesting. And I think it is important, not just for uh, how to infiltrate the brain, but also how to extend the perceptual capacities of the individual soldier through, you know, what we might call prosthetic devices that, you know, that they end up in many cases wearing on their body that record information, that analyze information, transmit information, and that too produces contradictions. It, it endangers the very soldiers that it's supposed to aid and, and uh, make more safe by forcing them into situations where they're the data gatherers. The critiques of this within the army, the critiques of the human terrain strategy, I think there's a notion that it's impossible to actually operationalize the idea of a human terrain, that there's so many variables, so many areas, and the more you know, the more you have to know, and it becomes a burden whose profit for the military is very murky, and we can see now a reaction against it. Just finally, one of the most interesting articles that I read very recently was from 2020 by a member of the military. The title of the article is why the Taliban is unbeatable. And this is produced by an army officer, somebody who had been a commander. And he gave a very, very good description, not of the, you know, every detail of Taliban life or something like that, but he could describe why they were able to win, not only militarily, which they did, which is extraordinary in many ways, but also to get the allegiance of the people and leaving the resistance to their, their program really isolated to Kabul. And uh, it's, it's something that's very difficult for people <laughs> to understand or to accept. But I think that the military produced this uh, commentary, which I think was shared, not openly, by many people, that th that was an impossible conflict, they would never win, and that's uh, led to the withdrawal. I think there's a lot to discuss, and I think it's an extremely rich book that uh, we'll be going back to many times. You know, thinking back to 2006, and, and specifically Petraeus as a sort of figurehead of what they call very explicitly the rise of the, of the scholar soldiers, so it's not just the citizen combatants, the scholar soldiers. 
I think one of the reasons that term is worth holding on to, or at least thinking critically about it, it has to do with this issue of knowledge and information management. I mean, Petraeus is a PhD in international studies from Princeton. The counterinsurgency field manual that, that Warren mentioned was produced by the University of Chicago Press, practically a bestseller. I probably outsold a lot of our own books. And the word that gets used in there over and over is culture. It's a keyword in, in that book. And it says that, you know, for us to, to fight the war that we're going to now need to fight, right, which is a multi-front war. And in fact, the word multi, I think, is what Warren was trying to get at in referencing Clausewitz and the idea of the sort of spatial and temporal complexities of post-human war, which is this idea of fog, which is, you know, not knowing and not having a complete sense of the battlefield. Because once you make everything an area of operation, um, if you think that through, there really is no position from which you can find an oppositional relationship to an enemy without that enemy turning into something that either disappears or pops up in places you don't expect. And that's the problem of a network-centric battlefield. Now, on the one hand, that's going to produce a lot of fog and a lot of friction. That is, things are going to not go well when you think they're going to go well. And on the other hand, what it did for the scholar-soldier in theory, and the theory didn't work out, as, as Warren rightly says, is that it just puts a new opportunity in play. Uh, and that opportunity is, is informational. They call it full-spectrum warfare, right? It means that everything is operational. The fact that Defense Department Secretary Gates, right, people will remember Gates, and, and was also a university president, uh, said many important things addressing the American uh, university professors, where he's actually talking about the importance not just of bringing civilian knowledge practices uh, into alignment with what we can and should be doing for issues of security, but especially fields, he says, in the humanities and in the liberal arts and social sciences. And this was a, you know, interesting development alongside the corresponding disintegration of those fields in their traditional senses in terms of at least support majors, faculty hires, and so on in, in the universities to see a, a strange backdoor revitalization of humanistic thinking as a militarized you know, application is another part of, of, of this problem. And Gates is, is very clear about that. In the Human Terrain Systems Program, for example, you could see job ads, and I applied for one uh, just for kicks, <laughs> that read a lot like sort of the an MLA job description you know, uh, rewritten with a military goal at the end. You know, it, it, the word cultural studies was used without irony in some of these human trade system program applications. So the goal was to put experts in the humanities disciplines, let's just say, or humanistic kinds of concerns, but then to recalibrate. And that's probably exactly the appropriate word to recalibrate humanistic discourse in a military fashion. So that was the promise. And the reason that the promise didn't pan out was exactly as Warren says, and this I think also just worth emphasizing, it was a promise predicated upon a presumption of the ability to process more faster. And the way you do that is not through traditional ways of thinking, reading, writing, discussing, all those old civil society modalities, right, that we recognize as maybe part of modernity and maybe no longer part of the present, because computation is also the emphasis in all of the revolution and military affairs discourse and in all of the counterinsurgency strategy material. They thought they were going to learn the lessons from the strategic Hamlet initiatives of the Vietnam War 
where some of these cultural practices were put into place for the first time uh, for uh, uses of population control and surveillance, which also failed because they thought the lack of, of computational power. And so there were going to be new forms of mapping, real-time census taking, all kinds of variations beyond just the usual ones that you can see with human eyes that were going to be put into this vast database that was going to beam back just like the drone you know, commands are to various data centers in the U.S. and then beam back to the soldiers so that all this kinds of control could happen, which didn't. But the premises, in other words, um, was all I'm trying to, to get at here of this being a knowledge operation and a cultural operation and one that, in, that involves a promise about you know, computational power was how the, the post-human war promise right, was set up. Thanks. I just first want to thank you, Mike, for writing this book and for the invitation to talk about it here. And maybe I'll say a, a few things just about the book and the kind of reader's experience of the book, which I also appreciate. There's a kind of cinematic quality, and I think Warren alluded to one dimension of this, the kind of proliferation of images and information and kind of lines of potential inquiry and analogies and metaphor. There's even a sort of reflection on analogy. And so there's something in the kind of in that experience that, that reads as cinematic. There's also, I think, surprising resemblances between major uh, kind of characters and figures in the plot, right? And so we get the U.S. military and the American Anthropological Association uh, resembling one another in a surprising narrative twist, right? We get a kind of university, DEI, multicultural liberalism being echoed in the Petraeus strategy, right? So we get, again, in this like quasi-cinematic um, experience, we get um, the kind of resemblance between perhaps our assumed villains and our assumed heroes that we hadn't expected. And then finally, I mean, sort of masterfully, we get this cliffhanger ending that in the manner of all contemporary Hollywood cinema ends on the opening to part two, to the next installment. We get the cliffhanger ending that opens to the next study contribution installment, which is going to be on ecology and post-human war. So there's something I just think as a like formal exercise that's kind of marvelous about it. I appreciate also the way that it opens with a proper preface and opening in which, Mike, you describe your own experience as a journalist, scholar, participant in a kind of simulated boot camp experience on Paris Island. Um, and so I'd like us to talk maybe a little bit in our discussion about what that experience was for you, what you felt yourself initiated into, and the process of unmaking and remaking that is a kind of classical part of the sort of boot camp experience and, and I think embedded in the mythology of the U.S. military. 
you know, I think this is a book in general about how what you're calling post-human war, and I appreciate that you began with your ambivalence around that term, or at least the way that you weren't necessarily wedded to that term. I think that term for you is to mark or note the displacement of a set of dualisms through which we have come to understand the conduct of war and are being kind of upset by some of its contemporary technologies and the applications of those technologies. And I take the primary dualism in some sense to be the dualism that defines war and politics itself. And so that's why you keep returning to at least a certain formulation in Clausewitz that gets then kind of rewritten and revised by Foucault. But I think you're suggesting must be rethought entirely in the wake of what, what I think Warren is rightly calling the Petraeus strategy. I'm sort of interested in the dualisms that remain, or maybe even the dualisms that get shored up in the context of those other dualisms that collapse or at least fall into disrepair. I was sort of reading in the context of thinking about the politics of gender and sexuality in the present, how it relates to the reorganization of kind of military logics and applications, a particular politics of gender, sexuality, and the family that has emerged on the right, and how it relates to this kind of new conduct of war. Um, and in this regard, I have a, a number of different questions. The first and I guess most basic is, have we ever been civilians? The sort of very argument about the de-civilianization of civil society might be premised on a certain understanding of the construction of civil society that was itself premised on a certain politics of gender, a certain politics of manhood that organized manhood into particular domains. And that from a different perspective, it might appear that we had never been fully civilian in a number of ways, in the ways that the citizen was always presumed to be a potential soldier tasked with the protection of the nation, all of the potential sacrifices, but also honors and rewards that come with that. But also the way that the family itself, you could say in its hierarchy and its powers, were always premised on the possibility of a masculine violence that circulated, at least in an imaginary or ideological way, outside the home and made, in some sense, the home itself, the family as a kind of fortress. And the citizen, therefore, as always, with respect to his own household, a kind of soldier. And so for me, it's no surprise that we have the overturning of Roe v. Wade and new laws restricting abortion at the very same moment that we have a pretty radical redefinition of our gun culture, gun politics, and gun laws, in which I think there's some relationship between the two. It's not just about the new conduct of war, the post-human war, the 
citizen combatant, the citizen who is also potentially fully armed with a military arsenal, but also the way that masculinity gets forged in that nexus. I sort of, throughout the book, wanted you to actually talk about the politics of manhood, both as it pertains to what seems to be your ongoing research interest in sites of what I might see as political masculinity, where like the politics of masculinity is like especially, and and that what seems to me so interesting here and might reflect the Petraeus strategy is the way that women might be invited to participate in it. That in some sense, the new technology is, you know, the new neuroscience invites women in a kind of gender neutral way into a politics that they had been historically excluded from. And then also the particular anxieties that that provokes. So the particular kinds of politics that are responsive precisely to the way that women can now participate in a a kind of political masculinity. I'm also interested in hearing you say something in this regard about the mobilization of private citizens in, for instance, Texas SB 8, the abortion law that activates a private citizenry as sort of vigilantes on behalf of a sort of new politics of the state, a kind of reproductive and neonatalist politics of the state, it seems to me relayed, again, without being too conspiratorial, and that's all ready to anticipate another comment I want to make, but like without being too conspiratorial, I'm sort of interested in how you see these developments as the kind of home front of uh, a kind of politics of, of terrain. Maybe the final thing I'll raise is for me a a question that really comes up. If you'll allow me to point to a specific passage in the book, Um, it's something that comes up on page 69. You're in some sense describing what you've said to this point about the Gates Doctrine, the national security strategy, and as it relates to the U.S. Census and new sort of techniques of, of gathering information about a citizenry the Republican dream of a three-way harmony among the individual, the public sphere, and the the state is apparently ended by the cruel awakening of post-human war. This cruelty exists because the assault on civil rights is intensified according to a further securitization of civil rights. This is this marvelous story you tell us about actually the weaponization of racial difference to, in some sense, defeat a civil rights project and a racial justice project. And so I do think we have to get back to that cynical weaponization of a kind of right-wing multiculturalism to precisely defeat a more emancipatory politics. But the thing I'm most interested in is the reference here you make to Kant. You quote Kant as saying, the state will invite their philosophers to help silently, making a secret of it. He thus places emphasis on both what is absent to transcendental thought, as well as what cannot be said about knowledge if you're bent on intersubjectivity. I'm like interested in this idea of the secret, what is unsaid, what cannot be said. It seems to me also has to be thought in relationship to kind of new conspiracisms, 
new forms of conspiracism, what we imagine cannot be said, the sort of secrets, the secret alliance between the state and its philosophers, that kind of hidden conspiracy between the state and the philosopher or the scholar that a figure like Gates or Petraeus might be seen to embody. I'd like to hear you say something about that, but I might also want to connect it to my thinking around the family, because it's my own hunch that like the family, the household itself has long been thought to harbor a set of secrets, a kind of aristocratic alliance, women often the kind of emblems of it. So Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton can very weirdly come to, I think, stand in for this conspiracy imagined to be kind of harbored somewhere in the family. The family panic in our present is not just about like, oh my gosh, the decay of this institution, you know, the fall of patriarchy. It's also around an anxiety around a conspiracy emblematized in women, in the power of women, in the authority of women, which has always weirdly existed and flourished in the family, even under patriarchy. I don't know if you feel this is quite a far, like far afield from what you're interested in, but these are the set of things that um, were sort of raised for me in thinking about the family, the military, the contemporary kind of conduct of post-human war. Thanks. Can I just interject one quick thing? Sure. I was just thinking about uh, the well-known misogyny that's typical of the far right today. I've, I've talked to a number of people about the opening scene of the film uh, American Sniper, and it involves uh, having to kill a woman and a child walking down the street. And the woman, of course, is wearing, uh, basically covering her entire body. If you look at testimonies and, and uh, statements by soldiers who served in Iraq, the attitude towards the women wearing that kind of clothing that covers their bodies is resentment, that they are denying the soldiers the pleasure they don't, they don't put it in that way, but they're denying the soldiers the pleasure of seeing them. The expectation and the demand, in a way, is that these women expose themselves to the soldiers, which they refuse to do. That's part of it. But the other side is the growing fear that this clothing is, in fact, used to hide, which it is in that film, used to hide weapons, explosives, etc. I mean, this goes back to the Battle of Algiers. It's something very similar. And so I, I think the misogyny, that's one of many causes, but the war and the specific place that the war occurred, et cetera, helped formulate the current misogyny in many ways. The soldiers discussed with the hijab it has nothing to do with feminism. It's the demand that you should expose yourself to me because I'm here, you know, helping you or something like that. I mean, you could connect it to everything, Robin, that you're just saying. It's part of that experience of you know, this sort of neo-colonial war. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really love the way this conversation is turning out because what I'm hearing are some really useful and powerful 
applications of some of the things that I tried to, to suss out about the current moment and, and, and some shifts around how we understand privacy, how we understand publicity, and how we understand uh, political violence and specifically, you know, war. Um, and I think if we could answer the question that Robin brilliantly put on the table, what is it that is so significant about this concurrence of a preoccupation with women and women's body, let's say Roe v. Wade, and we could also even add the hysteria over trans identity, you know, reading in drag to children who were completely innocent of the whole thing. This family panic, as, as Robin put it in such an eloquent way, and then how that is absolutely an essential symptom of the weaponization of a sphere of intimacy, call it the self, call it identity. We could call it the private sphere or more accurately, and again, the gender politics are essential here, the domestic sphere. Clearly, when the, the idea of the human being per se is being invented, and there is the promise of this new universality. It is a universality of the absolute few, not just in terms of the numbers of bodies on the colonial periphery that produced the wealth that made it possible for the conjugal patriarchal figurehead to have the disposable income to buy the property, to claim the home, to create the domestic sphere, which is supposed to lie outside of politics, outside of uh, public discourse, and especially outside of the state, but that that alignment that you described, once it comes undone, that may be a way to explain the panic, the family panic, right? That in other words, what I called autogenic war in this text, right, is maybe one way to explain the hypervigilance around sexuality and especially women's sexuality and women's bodies and, and, and reproductive rights. That this now becomes privacy turned outward, but in this way that is totally subjected to vigilante forms of justice, let's just say, which is just another way to talk about, not just another, is another way to talk about the militarization of the human being per se or the citizen so soldier. I think it might be possible to synthesize some of the other, and thank you so much for, for such a meticulous and, and, and thoughtful way to describe the book in your reading of it. I, I really liked what you said about the heroes and villains switching places sometimes. And that fluidity maybe is exactly what happens in the fog of war when you start to think in network-centric terms rather than in terms of strict dualisms and opposition. When you talk about dualisms in, in the second part of your response, the other part of Clausewitz, since he's come up before, right, is his definition of war as politics by their means, or he says a dualism carried out on a mass scale, right? That is that duality and dualisms is sort of all part of an earlier paradigm of war. Large armies, mass mobilization, people in uniforms, citizens at least theoretically, you know, distinguished from enemy combatants. But if we can just draw down on that, question of duality itself. And maybe this is a way I can explain about uh, something about my experiences at Paris Island. The duality in play, at least as I arrived, was at least superficially one of researcher, professor, let's hope thinker in some way, and clearly not somebody who is going to be at least uh, at the onset arriving with a predisposition to really dig what I'm about to do. <laughs> you know, it was 
I went there with suspicion and cynicism and, you know, all kinds of, of carefulness about supping with the devil or the devil dogs, as the Krampus puts it. And yet, you mentioned before some experience with this, people that you're close to or that you know, part of the making of Marines is the unmaking of the civilian. I experienced something there, and I don't want to go on too much about my own experience, but it had to do with that unmaking. By the, when I arrived, I was distant. <laughs> when I left, I was seduced to some degree. That is, the subject positions started to get a little bit fluid. And the thinker, the outside of war, the professor were distanced from that. I'm going to analyze. I'm going to write about it. I'm not a participant. I'm just an observer. My object of observation suddenly moved into a zone of proximity where I became a little more intimate with it than I might have liked. Same thing happened when I spent time with the neo-fascists in an earlier work and went the promise keepers. That is, there's a way in which after weeks of immersion, you know, a kind of, and, and also the physical duress and the screaming and the sand fleas and the early hours and the exhaustion just wears you down. But as it wears you down, something else gets built up. And I don't know what that is, but it's a very seductive esprit de corps, you know, sort of feeling of collective purpose that only seems possible outside of civil society relations, too. Because once you enter into that sphere, you're subject to the code of military justice. That is to say, you have no more constitutional rights. You have to decivilianize to become that kind of comrade in a way. And so... There was a really weird sort of fluidity, I suppose, where that duality question came into play, just at least for me at the experiential level. The other term I mentioned, and maybe this gets to the, the question a little bit more directly of, of the what can't be said, which is the last thing that you mentioned. Um, and this was a term I thought about too when Warren was talking, and then I'll try to open, shut up and open the floor a little bit. And I mentioned this before, autogenic war. That is, at the same time you're trying to secure something, the thing you're trying to secure becomes more insecure for your having tried to secure it. You are a citizen, and for me to secure you fully, I have to identify you as a suspect. You might also be a terrorist. Everyone's a potential terrorist, remember, under the new Patriot Act and all the data dumps that we're subject to and all of the rest of it. Everybody's under surveillance all the time. There's no, no need for a warrant, you know, or anything like that, right? That's what I mean by autogenic war, the distinction between war and peace. The spatial demarcations between battle zones and zones of peace are no longer there in any absolute sense, right? And technology, at least in some sense, enables that to happen. The what goes unsaid, I think, has to do with that question that you raised, and I think it is that takes us right back to the question of gender and sexuality. Have we ever been civilians? <laughs> I think the answer is absolutely not. War has always been, as uh, uh, my friend Chris Hedges says, the force that gives us meaning if the us is the nation state that presumes to keep its citizens outside war. The U.S. has been at war in one form or another since its founding, over 90% of its existence. And that excludes all of the CIA-backed assassinations of democratically elected leaders in countries we, quote-unquote, don't particularly like, right? So war has not only been proximate, it's been foundational. To admit that, right, as part of the civil society story, 
is to, to introduce that no. Another way to introduce that no is to recover what's been silenced, and that is the history of political insurrection in this country uh, or in other countries. That is to say, within the fog of war, when the people no longer becomes a people, in the sense of maintaining that individual domestic sphere, civil society, state co-equivalence, but when the people decide to do what Kant says you can't do, which is not only to argue, but also to disobey, to take to the streets, to engage in forms of civil disobedience, to break the law on purpose, right? To become militant in the small m sense of that word for purposes of political change of one form uh, or another. It seems to me that the state has already made those assumptions. Let's say, for example, the folks in Georgia now protesting a cop city, and they're doing it in, on environmental grounds. You, you were kind enough to mention the next installment of this book, which will be on the weaponization of ecology, that whereas this was the weaponization of the human, the next will be the weaponization of things. They're now being uh, held under terrorism charges, right? not for breaking the law in this traditional sense of trespassing or private property issues, the things that when I was at Humboldt State University, the tree sitters were incarcerated for, which was, oh, you're on private property, you know, protecting the redwoods and that kind of thing. Well, now they're called terrorists. They're going to be prosecuted accordingly. And that's, that's true on the floor of the right as well as the left. I mean, the state is, is opening up, you know, a whole zone of criminal prosecution to a more militarized, right, insurrectionary state violence sort of way of thinking. And so that ground seems to me already cleared by the Petraeus doctrine or the Gates doctrine, the revolution of military affairs. And this just seems to me uh, the domestic application of that. So I think that part of that silence of the history of a radically feminist rethinking of civil society, and especially the private-public split, and then the, re, the rethinking of that split and the reintegration of this under the heading of a more fully weaponized way of looking at the, at the world, that that is also a silence that needs to be rendered speakable. And so to answer that question at the end, I think one way to do it is just to connect with the earlier parts of, of your comments, you know, the slippage between the self and the object, the slippage between the thinker and the combatant to me is absolutely connected to the slippage around family and privacy and reproductive rights and, and gender identity. And it is a motivator for that family panic, you know, that, that you mentioned. So I, I'm so grateful to you, Robin, for, for putting that out there. Maybe I could steer us in a somewhat different direction and ask you to reflect on the ways that this book, I think, invites us to rethink and reconsider what has come to be diagnosed as the crisis and the humanities. It's precisely the scholar-soldier who embodies the fusion of humanistic, sort of civilizing education and the most sophisticated conduct of postmodern, late modern war. On the one hand, you could say this is an old story. You know, I'm housed in a political science department. The story of political science in America's long collaboration with the military industrial complex, the State Department, U.S. intelligence, you know, you could say like, International relations itself is sort of birthed um, as an intelligence op. Right? So uh, there's a, a few questions here. I mean, one question is like, what is new 
you know, with the technologies that you want and the science, you know, the birth of sciences that you want to tell us have kind of shifted things in a substantial way. Not only what's new, but in some sense, what the kind of popular conversation around the crisis of the humanities actually masks and obscures, right? So what kinds of silences does it participate in? And I think we're used to now appreciating the way that that talk obscures the role, especially of financialization and finance capital in the university. But I think you're telling this much more elaborate kind of everything everywhere story in which the university really sits right at the center of it. And not just the university as corporate engine, right, or as investment apparatus, but like actually humanities, the sort of humanities talk in the university is like right in the thick of it. And I think it invites us all to think very differently about how we've come almost reflexively, and I think this includes on the left, reflexively to sort of think about and talk about the crisis of the humanities, to imagine that they are in crisis, as opposed to what I think you do quite well, which is to show actually how hegemonic some of our ideas, which we imagine to be dissident ideas, are. It turns out that the U.S. military has integrated the insights of Bedou maybe more powerfully than most English departments and most philosophy departments. And that, to me, is a really remarkable thing. And it's something that, you know, a certain kind of hand-waving is, is insufficient to address. Like a certain kind of like, what are you guys doing is insufficient. It turns out that these people might be the most serious sophisticated and advanced readers of our traditions. Yeah, I want to ask Warren to talk about this too, because I know Warren has for a very long time worked on the question of humanism and theoretical anti-humanism for a long time, and I've always admired his work on that. But the interesting thing that you bring up about trying to imagine, you know, this is a crisis and then suggesting that, well, the crisis of the humanities may only be apparent to people within the humanities who think that there was once upon a time this very stable and detached and disinterested and humanist way of doing things, which many of us know not to be true. I'll say that what you say about Baju assimilation into the epistemo military arts, if you want to use that term that I kick around in the book, is literally true. I mean, that's not just a theoretical observation. I mean, they do read Deleuze at West Point. Uh, I was there at uh, a conference and, uh, one time and uh, found myself just jaw-droppingly you know, impressed by a young cadet's interest in the idea of the rhizome as a way to rethink the battlefield. And of course, uh, this has been used in a lot of post-structural French theory has been used very explicitly in a lot of counterinsurgency theory, which we could, we could point to. But to circle back to the, the humanities as it currently exists, I mean, I am as much of a participant observer <laughs> who feels both attracted to and alienated by the university humanity system <laughs> as I was when I was with the U.S. Marines. I'm still, I suppose, in my own mind, somewhat of an imposter 
my father didn't go to college and graduate from high school. Uh, parents were very reluctant to see me leave the construction field and, and, and do something as audacious and maybe even emasculating, to go back to your earlier point, as getting a degree in English. It's always been a crisis situation of one form or another. I'm surprised every day that I'm still here. The other thing I'm surprised about is the conservatism that passes on the progressive left. And I mean, in terms of just, you know, hey, we're losing majors, we're becoming defunded. It's time to go back to the basics and really dig in and protect the home turf. And, and what the basics mean is to go back and protect a canon, to think in really traditional terms of human genius and imagination and an independent autonomous expression and uh, all of those things that are connected to the old notion of the human being and the humanities, which is a, a detachment really from political reality and, and especially political realities you know, having to do with ways in which the, the global economy has changed, and then what it demands of the university. It no longer needs to produce the same kinds of workers or afford the privilege of non-workers, if you want to think about humanities professors, that it used to. Everything's become privatized. I mean, our, our own university no longer uh, has the SUNY acronym in the front because the state has pretty much pulled out, you know, as you, as you know, Robin, of the support of public research universities and everything here has become more or less privatized. But my disappointment in the response to that has been a kind of retrograde, it seems to me, reverse guard, you know, turning back to some notion of the creative and autonomous self or some notion of the university that has a kind of pristinely detached civic orientation as a, alternatively one that is engaged with the kinds of realities that we've been talking about. I'll say one more quick thing. It just, it, again, it comes out of my own position in an English department, which is not terribly comfortable as a person who doesn't write a whole lot on literature. But we have a new college and a new major called the College of Homeland Security and Cybersecurity. And it's quickly become the most powerful and important college on campus. It went from a handful of majors when I was department chair we had a thousand majors in English at the time. We now have about 280 something and they've got about a thousand something. So, you know, it's almost proportionally inverted in terms of the popularity of, of at least that humanities discipline. And English was once one of the more popular humanities disciplines to, you know, reorientation of work, of university work, right? along the lines of the security apparatus. And I go over there sometimes, too, and I'm a little bit perverse in that way. <laughs> and knock on people's doors and talk to them or go to talks and try to raise my hand and say, will you be my friend? And they say, no, you're in the humanities. Go over there. You don't belong in politics, you know? Anyway, Warren, I know Warren wants to get to getting, or I hope he does anyway. Well, yeah, I think if you look at English, I think that it's absolutely right to uh, point out that there was never some unopposed tradition that was very hegemonic for most of the century until the evil French theory and uh, other things happened. And people forget almost completely that the new criticism emerged in reaction to Marxism and the theory that you look at a literary text completely separate from history is a testimony to that. And, you know, we see very similar things happening today, like uh, surface reading and other, maybe the new formalism, et cetera. 
But I think it's also important to keep in mind that every one of these is, is a, a field of contestation. We don't have the good theory and the bad theory, because as Robin was saying, even the good theory today can very quickly become the bad theory. I mean, what I was thinking about as you were speaking was about big data approaches to literature. And I, I'm not a, a, in any way opposed to them. And I think that in many cases, very, very interesting and very helpful. But you could see how easily that would be folded into an enlarged Petraeus strategy of creating information that is useful for purposes of domination, etc. And, uh, you know, also in a certain way, depending on how it's used, it could be depoliticized and made to appear completely innocent. And I think that, as you were saying, Robin, that Kantian statement about philosophers helping but silently, secretly. In English, it's typically that way, that there's a, not everybody, but I mean, there's a generalized denial on nearly everyone's part of the political effects, even if it has nothing to do with their intentions, but it's the effects of what they're doing, the history of what they're doing, and they don't want to think about that. They can't stand to bring in, I mean, it's, it's a taboo to even bring politics into it in many ways. And I think that that's what Althusser referred to as a kind of objective alliance between theories and positions that otherwise are, are antithetical or antagonistic. But depending on the situation, they can enter into a kind of alliance that has nothing to do with their intentions, but their effects that uh, serves the the very dynamics that we're talking about, you know, in different ways. I mean, surface reading says, let's never talk about politics. It's crap, et cetera. And then you have big data, which also in the guise of a kind of statistical rigor also evacuates uh, politics. The big data theory, I think, is not uh, lost or it's not destined to be something completely reactionary, but it's very difficult to create an awareness People don't look at the effects of their, their theoretical work. And, you know, that's part of the humanistic tradition. It's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I intend to do. And therefore, I'm innocent of the effects, etc. And I think that's a, it's a very bad habit. And it depoliticizes things in a way that favors the powers that be and the tendencies that we're looking at now. So I think that it's absolutely true that there are myths and most uh, exercises in literary theory or practice of literary theory just is silent about it. It's silent about its own contributions to what's going on. And also, you know, maybe it is silent to itself in that way that people don't see what's going on. I think it's right, and I think it's very important for us to raise the, those issues. Here's a, just a quick point, too, um, that gets us back to the history of the, of the human, which is the only reason for using the post, just to indicate that there's a temporality to this and a historical specificity to it. But there's a historical specificity to the discipline of English as well. And this is all worth pointing out, not just because it's concurrent with the history of the ideals of civilian life and all of those false oppositions specifically between domestic and public and public and state and so on that we've been talking about, it also plays a really important role in that. So if you think about the history of literature with a capital L, right, which of course before the 18th century would have meant anything written down, right? You were a good writer, you did literature, you could be a lawyer or whatever else you, you were, a philosopher, etc. 
the idea of, you know, literature, literary studies, English departments, you know, is a specifically autonomous realm of imaginative thinking where you transcend, you know, your material conditions and all the things that, that you're supposed to forget and silence when you are in that realm of of spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling, as, as Wordsworth says, right, is very specific to this period that we're talking about and this way we're trying to think about change. The first literature departments, right, were colonial enterprises, India, for one, English, and, and, and Scotland was the other one, right, where the idea was to invent Englishness so that at the periphery there could be an identification with the subordinator. It was also a question of, of scale, you know, of bigness, of largeness. So it's not just a data problem now when we do surface reading and we think about how to create algorithms to search for patterns that we might not see and therefore and divorce it from politics. I mean, the scale of print production in the 18th century was absolutely massive compared to anything that had happened before the lapse of the Licensing Act in around 1690 something. And so when you get these technological revolutions like steam-driven press and cheap ink from India and cheap paper from the, the Americas or what have you, right, you get another media revolution. And that media revolution is part and parcel of the, of the invention of the civil society. And the way that it's dealt with is in a really interesting way because it's revealing about the kinds of false universalities that we're trying to describe, right? That is the ones that seem to be superficially apparent, the human being per se, or how wonderful that's supposed to be when we know that in reality such a thing was invented by a small minority of people to benefit a small minority of people, right? Even with that universality of the few, it's almost as if a kind of epistemic version of that ontological switcheroo took place in the history of the discipline. So you've got this massive amount of print, whether it's broadsides or satirical ballads or subversive writing from workers who are revolting against the early forms of industrialization. And what you do is you invent a discipline to create that universality of the few. That is, you take a few representative texts and you say, this is now this thing we're going to invent called the canon. So the history of the English literature doesn't begin with Beowulf and then go forward through Bronte's to Brecht. You know? It begins in the 18th century and goes backwards and forwards simultaneously. And it creates this false sense of continuity and historical uh, sameness that also values a small group of texts a large amount, okay? Instead of valuing a large group of texts a large amount. And so if you were to do that, you would be involved in some of the archival recovery. That would speak to your other question about women specifically and the history of the discipline in writing, right? I mean, look at the traditional canon. And you have the philosophy of science, which I've been reading a bunch of lately. And so you can read and should, of course, you know, Bacon and Newton and Hooke and all the rest. But my God, there's some amazing stuff like Margaret Cavendish. It's just brilliant things going on in there with what's happening in her work. These are silent figures in the history of the discipline. And so the way that that media revolution was dealt with was through that same kind of sleight of hand, you know, a reduction and expansion. Reduce the number of texts. We'll pretend it expands out to everybody. But the everybody is an absolutely empty, idealized zone of you know delusion, I suppose you could say. But you would have to be thinking about the opposite of delusion as other than that which is superficially there. In other words, you'd have to look with the, within those silences for what's repressed and what, what is spoken about allusively uh, in the same way that that 
political violence within the history of, of civil societies, and they're allusively, you know, silenced by the official histories uh, that we write. Oh, one other quick thing. I'm reading a bunch of uh, climate change science fiction right now, and I'm trying to tinker with this idea because so much of them are about war, right? I mean, so much of them are about, it's like ecological revenge against the polluters and a lot of this stuff. And war, there's usually these insurgent groups like the Children of Cali from India in the Kim Stanley Robinson novel. But what I'm noticing, and I'm teaching this class in climate change science fiction, and this goes back even to Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, which is insurgency text, and a lot of environmental insurgency text. And it may just be a coincidence, but almost all of the, go back to the hero-villain thing, the heroes are almost all women. In that uh, Vanderdarian series, um, I'm noticing it in, in, as I just said, the, the Robinson thing, there just seems to be with these more militantly activated ecological revenge texts where women are playing this really important role. I don't know if you've come across that or if you've seen that at all. Well, I'm I'm thinking about some film examples where, you know, you could think about like Terminator 2 as like the beginning of, of this. Now, what's interesting there is you get the woman who I think has a critique of the war apparatus which is like, you men, all you know how to do is make war, right? Whereas I give life. So it's like the woman as like fertile bearer of life juxtaposed against, you know, the male destroyer of life. But of course, like what was so riveting about that film was the way that she did it in this like martial militarized aesthetic it was all about you know her essentially like combat training as a prisoner and her sort of readiness for war so I'm constantly drawn back to that film as like a transitional film you know that like really opens to this kind of scrambling of gender you could say this like post-Title IX world where women can be soldiers and, you know, where the Citadel is being reorganized on the basis of a claim to legal equality, right? So, like, the way that that then not only impacts the military, but, like, impacts culture at the time. So we get Terminator 2 and we get G.I. Jane. I mean, what's striking about Terminator 2 is that it's so wrapped up in an environmental, ecological catastrophe as well. Then the other thing that you're making me think is the way war has colonized the imagination. This became really clear for me in the neuroscience chapter. Like part of it really is about the activation of the brain as terrain. But the flip side of it seemed to be also about like the absence of other ways of like thinking about what this discovery could be in some sense the colonization of like a kind of martial war project on the human sciences so that there's this like really no other way that we can talk about the brain except in this and that for me is the other part of the story here in the context of environmental crisis and climate change it's like part of the task is the imaginary task like what will the future be 
And then it's like, well, war has really just come in and colonized that whole domain, which is like the domain of political imagination. This is, I think, a story about Hollywood. It's a story about cinema. It's a story about the actual conduct of war. But like your book, I think, also wants to like sit in that place, which is the place where not only our ways of thinking, but our modes of imagination get colonized by this particular discursive project. Yeah, you know, there's a epigram somewhere in the book that says, you might not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. And uh, there is a sense in which we're, to use an old familiar term, interpolated within a war imaginary without necessarily knowing it. But the interesting part of what you just said that brings me beyond that is the way in which alternative kinds of propositions might be held forth. I mean, what I often hear from people is, oh man, this is so bleak and everything is war and war is everywhere. And well, even thinking is war now. And man, there's just no way out. The hell with it. Liquor's cheaper. You know, so I mean, you know, it just becomes a kind of uh, a cynical spin. I really regret that writing that led to that reading, I suppose you could say, because, you know, I mean, I think the ecological part of it is perhaps maybe a possibility for a flip side that doesn't give up on net centrism, that doesn't give up on collectivist ways of thinking about identity fluidity. But it ha- would have to be, by definition, beyond the human. That's the premise of on post-human war. But maybe it, it also is a, an invitation to tap into other forms of agency that are non-human, but that are somehow also political in ways we haven't quite thought through. Certainly, they would not be commodified. They would have to absolutely not be commodified forms of non-human agency. That would be, by definition, a reduction in relationality, right? That, that has to do with erasing and making absence you know, those big, important, real relations that we call labor. But even beyond that, maybe to think about something that once again, to give it away a little bit, the next book, the the military is already doing. It, it was in around 2010 that they decided in the midst of all of the climate science denial that they were going to begin wargaming a world in which environmental degradation was what they call a force multiplier. When culture became a force multiplier and identity infiltration and and ontological operational superiority became a thing that they were interested, they're already two or three steps ahead of the, the game. And that's where the next question of terrain leads. It's not the terraining of the human being per se, but something like the humanization of terrain, but without the human being per se. They're really thinking in ways that Warren already pointed out can be incredibly dangerous in terms of the way they fail about, you know, the moment at which it's going to be really easy to move battleships across the North Pole, right? Because there won't be ice getting in the way, you know, and and things like that. And, you know, GE was cloud seeding here in the Hudson Valley in the 1950s. There's a whole history of environmental modification going back to trying to flood out the Ho Chi Minh Trail to Nixon wanting to bomb the dams to flood out, you know, the insurgency. And that was rendered at least theoretically illegal by the UN in the late 70s, early 80s. 
But that was environmental modification by design. In other words, you stick enough iodine in the air or whatever it was they were putting to try to make it rain. And that was thought about as a new military weapon. The idea was to be able to create artificial rain clouds to be able to you know, produce bad weather for your combatants. It's not just environmental modification by design, which the UN has explicitly said is not allowable for what that's worth, but it's environmental modification by default. We've talked a long time. I, don't know. I just want to thank you guys again so much. I appreciate it even more after hearing what you all had to say and really learned a lot from your comments, both of you. This has been a University of Minnesota Press production. The book On Post-Human War, Computation and Military Violence is available from University of Minnesota Press. Thank you for listening.